As you well know, Toe dips its toes, so to speak, into philosophy, both publicly as well as I do so in my personal life. I encourage you to do the same with Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. Nearly 2,000 years after it was written, this guide to personal growth remains eminently relevant for anyone seeking to lead a meaningful life. Meditations isn't your average self-help book. In fact, it was the emperor's personal journal, and this makes it useful not only as a form of propositional knowledge, but to aid perspectival knowledge, something that John Verveke talks about as exigent, though missing in our culture. We sit in this improbable, even preposterous position of having the opportunity to peer into one of the deepest soul-searching, thoughtful, private questions, internal struggles that the once leader of the world thought about in his moments alone. Like, man, I would love to interview him if Marcus were a guest on tow. Maybe he would be a fan of the CTMU. Maybe he would be a Castrop sympathizer. I'll leave that up to you. Dive into the philosophies of Marcus Aurelius today with the book that Ryan Holiday said is the greatest book ever written. Meditations is available from Penguin Random House at prh.com slash meditations. Yeah, man, one of the things that I'm kind of excited about is I talk a lot to the typical media that knows the very simplified version of what's been going on with the UFO mystery, but I also talk a lot with people who are just way into UFOs. I appreciate that you're neither of those, and we might have a different conversation. So yeah, anything you want to talk about that is interest to you and your audience is fine with me. Recently, I had the pleasure of speaking with Jeremy Corbell, a documentary filmmaker who specializes in what he calls the extraordinary. So UFOs, aliens, and the like. It might seem like a departure from the academic chaperone that you're used to from this channel, but keep in mind that the goal has always been to give you in-depth analyses on topics that are abstract in such a way that you can't find it pretty much anywhere else because I believe you're far smarter than other podcasts give you credit for, and that if you don't understand some terminology or some mathematical concept, it's just a Google search away. You can learn it if you want to put the time in. Alternatively, you can go to the subreddit, a new one which is recently launched for this channel called r slash theories of everything, dedicated to expositing on theories of everything. This level of somewhat recondite detail is necessary if we want to get to the bottom of the fundamental laws of physics rather than stay at the surface. Okay, so how does this all relate to Jeremy Corbell? Recall that I'm of the opinion that a large breakthrough is necessary in physics, and I have a feeling it's going to come from the outside, though I can't prejudice myself as to where the signal or series of signals will come from. The ordinary physics community draws the line at consciousness. You know this. The ordinary member of the public draws the line at the supernatural or the paranormal. Now, I don't draw those lines. I find it dubious in pretty much each direction whether consciousness is fundamental or ontologically primitive, or whether aliens exist or not. I'm unconvinced in each direction, however, I'm still willing to explore it. If aliens do exist, then that means there's new physics. See, I'm, I don't see technological applications like some of the engineers. I happen to be theoretically trained, so I see, or at least I perceive, potential new physics, and that excites me. Now I have some issues with the way that gravity wave amplification is used because I don't see that as a coherent concept. I don't understand it unless I see the equations. It's ill-defined to me. I also don't like the use of the word dimension to speak about alternate realities because to me the word dimension 
is reserved for a degree of freedom. I also have a pet peeve of people saying space and time. There is no space and time. There's only space time. Not even a hyphen. It's technically space time. It's a four-dimensional manifold. It's one object. There's no such thing as separate space. There's no such thing as separate time. Either way, if during the interview you see me somewhat subdued or quiet during those parts, it's because inside my head I'm making a Wu Yang dictionary-like substitution and I didn't see the need to correct it in real time because it doesn't change much of the underlying meaning and there's no sense slowing down the conversation for what will be perceived as pedantry. Jeremy Corbell is undaunted and has my respect and commendations. I'm lucky because this might be one of the most sobering and enlightening videos with him. Please support at patreon.com slash if you'd like to see more videos like this because right now I'm doing it pretty much pro bono and it takes quite a bit of time to do the preparation since the goal is to investigate with each guest at a more benthic level, deeper and more academic, let's say, than any other interview with them. Enjoy. I'm here with Jeremy Corbell. Thank you, Jeremy. I appreciate you coming on. Thanks for having me on, Kurt. You know, you and me are similar in that we're filmmakers. We're both one-man bands in that I write, direct, edit, produce, shoot my own films. How about yourself? Yeah, that's the only way I know how. I'd love to work with other people. I just haven't uh, gotten there yet. So I do everything on my own. Right. What's the thought process that you go through to select the topics for your films? Yeah, well, I, you know, the premise for each film that I've put out, I've done a lot of investigations. I, I haven't made films on each investigation. The, the premise has always been, can I move the ball forward? Can I bring something to light, show it in a way that hasn't been done before that will alter the narrative that will bring new information. And so that's kind of been my passion in one sense is that I, I would like to uplift the, the visual aesthetic on this topic that I love, which is UFOs and the mysterious and the unknown, but that I can also move the ball forward. So that's kind of been my two prong approach. I mean, I'm not a, I, I didn't know if I was a filmmaker. I'd never made films before I got, I lucked out. I put one out on Netflix called patient 17. It was my first film ever that I submitted and got picked up. But with all of my films, what you'll see is that I'm trying to humanize the individuals who I'm speaking with. It's, there's no script uh, in, in the standard sense. Um, there are long form investigative documentaries where I embed myself in people's lives and their belief systems, their extraordinary beliefs. I'm not choosing sides and saying someone should believe this or someone should believe that. I always leave it open to the viewer and I show it just as it is. This is what happened. This is what's going on. You know, you need to decide for yourself reality. And so I'm not preaching to anybody in my films. The world is mysterious. I have more questions than answers. So yeah. Have you always been interested in the paranormal? Yeah. I don't, you know, I'm kind of allergic to that word because I, I don't know what normal is. You know, I, I, let's just use what I mean is what, the general public would call paranormal. Yeah, it's just that uh, I'd like to kind of combat that idea that things are considered paranormal, like like germs were considered at one time magical. And it's just because we didn't understand them. And so I think that we have a lot of catching up to do. These mysteries exist. They These things occur. 
And putting your head in the sand is not going to do anything. So getting to understand the way that people engage what I call the phenomenon, which includes the paranormal, but is also related to UFOs. Uh, it's important that we understand that we might not understand it all yet. And so that's the kind of premise of my series, Extraordinary Beliefs and all the films is, you know, let's, let's talk about these things. For people who are watching, who are my audience, my usual audience, it might seem like a departure this interview because sure. I usually talk to professors of physics and so on. Yeah. And the channel is called Theories of Everything. So the goal is to explicate the current theories of everything as well as to generate my own. And it's somewhat of a process because I'm taking input from the audience. There's some people with, let's say, outrageous theories that or theories that are considered to be non-rigorous. And I welcome them, unlike most people. And the reason is that I think that the innovation is going to come from the fringe rather than the center. And I could be wrong about that, but that's my intuition. So why am I interviewing Jeremy? Why am I interviewing you? One of the reasons is that what's held physics back for the past 40 years is a paucity of data. So a lack of data. And one of the reasons for that is it's high energy physics is it's extremely expensive. When I look at someone like Bob Lazar, now Bob Lazar, I would think of him more as a, an extremely sophisticated engineer rather than a theoretical physicist. And I think that he considers himself to be an engineer, but I could be wrong. Either way, he looks at it as technology. And many, and many of the interviews with UFOs, they talk about technology, technology. Now, I, th I see it from a theoretical physics standpoint. I don't see technology. I see new fundamental physics. And I'm curious, I'm so curious if any of this is true, well, there's breakthroughs for a potential theory of everything. For example, there's something called SO10, which is and flipped SO10, which is a unification of the weak and electromagnetic and strong force, but it doesn't incorporate gravity. And it's a pretty good theory. But I heard Lazar refer to the strong force as gravity number two, something like that. Now that like I would I would love to explore, but either way, I think that you have some, it might not be mathematical, but you have some ideas as to what possible new technologies, new physics exist. And I just want to speculate like mad here. Yeah. The, the physics of it's amazing, but let, let's back way the fuck up, you know, for your audience, um, people might not know. So let's uh, start with this. So my name is Jeremy Corbell. I'm a documentary filmmaker. I make, uh, you know, investigative documentaries. I recently released one that was a Netflix smash hit, went all around the world, hundreds of millions of views. Uh, I went on the Joe Rogan podcast three times with three different individuals that I brought with, with me that all relate to this topic of UFOs. Uh, the man you mentioned, Bob Lazar, in case people don't know, Bob Lazar is the man, he's the reason why the, in the public consciousness, you know about Area 51 and flying saucers. Bob Lazar is the reason for that. He came forward in 1989 over 30 years ago and talked about how our government, the United States government was attempting to reverse engineer these extraterrestrial machines, machines from other worlds, and that he participated in that attempt to reverse engineer those spacecraft. People called him a fraud, a liar. They tried to dig into his personal life and you know decide that he's not telling us the truth about UFOs because he ran a brothel or you know all this crazy shit. But bottom line is, after 30 plus years, Bob Lazar's story stands true. He, he did exactly what he said he did. Now, people don't need to believe that. There's a much bigger picture going on here. The big picture is this. 
do does our government, the United States government or, or world governments, do they have craft from other civilizations, advanced civilizations that are technologically more advanced and operate in the realm of physics that is beyond our understanding? That's the question. Bob Lazar has always said, I can't prove everything in my story, but over time you'll see it's true. And the big thing for Bob was that Bob is a scientist. So the big thing for Bob was the science and technology that's being hold back from humanity that are represented in these craft. Now we couldn't replicate them. We couldn't reproduce them significantly in any way because the material science was the number one thing that held us back. But we did get an understanding how they operate, how they use gravity wave amplification to traverse space time. All of this sounds like science fiction if I was talking to you five years ago. But in December of 2018, there was the announcement that the United States government had a program called ATIP, Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program. This program was tasked with identifying and tracking and trying to observe the flight characteristics and patterns of what we call UFOs, non-terrestrial vehicles. So it has been admitted that the United States military is investigating the UFO problem and that they've been doing so actively. There was another program called AWSAP, Advanced uh, Aerospace Weapon Systems Application Program. This was the mother program that housed the, the ATIP program. New York Times came out and said, these programs are real. And not only that, but we have fighter pilots like Commander David Fravor, who came forward, who chased a UFO for the United States government. I was the person that was able to get him first on record, long form audio coming forward. Also first filmed interview coming forward. I also got the guy, uh, Chad Underwood. He is now commander, Commander Chad Underwood. He's the guy that filmed the Tic Tac UFO, the now famous Tic Tac UFO. So that's kind of the brief history of what's been going on with Bob Azar and UFOs. But we're now at a place, we understand how they work. It is not our, against our physics how they work. We have to reimagine what we don't understand about physics. It's gravity wave amplification. Okay. At times, I'm going to slow you down or ask you to repeat because I don't know too much about this. Is, I have a brief foray into this, the UFO phenomenon. So when you say ATIP and OSAP and so on, I might get you to repeat them. One for our audience, but two for me to write down to ask you some more questions and to investigate later. I just learned about John Lear today. <laughs> so I was just watching some of your, I think it was episode one about John John yeah, I, I abandoned that project a while ago. I filmed with John for about eight years, seven or eight years. And, you know, he's the godfather of conspiracy. He's, he's not the touchstone of truth that I go to about the UFO thing. He's wild. But as an individual, I really liked him. You know, so I, I filmed with him for yeah about seven or eight years. Right. John Lear mentioned that he saw some object on the moon. Do you recall what he's referring to? John or that Lear he has envisioned told me a lot. John Lear has told me a lot of things, you know, people living on the sun, that kind of thing. I, I would not take anything that John Lear says as, you know, a touchstone of truth for the UFO topic. He is as fringe as fringe gets. I didn't okay. document him because I believed him. I documented him because he's a character. You know, he's the son of William P. Lear, inventor of the, the Learjet and the 8-track stereo and Motorola company. And you know, he's an interesting guy. Bob Lazar stands aside. Bob Lazar it was an employee hired through EGNG to work at a sub base of Area 51 called Site 4, 
where he was tasked specifically with the power and propulsion of these non-terrestrial craft and trying to back engineer them. Who else do you find credible? There's Bob Lazar, John Leonow, David Fravor, and then you mentioned the guy who actually took the video of the Tic Tac. Yeah, who there's, else? A lot of, there's a lot of people in, in the UFO field, right? But there's individuals who are kind of keystones along the way. Why Commander Fravor is so credible? Because he's a trained observer. He's a fighter pilot with more hours than anybody that was out on that mission, right? And not only did he engage this tic-tac-shaped UFO that defied our known physics, its propulsion system was a reactionless system. Usually things push something out the back and they go forward. This had none of that. It was a gravitational system. You could tell by the acceleration, the lack of the sonic boom, the instantaneous control turns and speeds. So Commander Fravor is a trained observer who came forward both in, in briefings to Congress, private briefings to Congress, as well in intelligence reports, and then publicly once I was able to really bring him out. He is credible because of who he is. And then, of course, there were other witnesses. And that's what makes for a good UFO case. There are other trained witnesses. And we have footage of that one. It's one of the famous three videos that was released by the Pentagon showing the world public that UFOs exist, they're flying with impunity in our airspace, and they've been here a long time. So, you, you know, this is and not- when you say impunity, you don't mean that they're exempt from punishment. They would try to punish them if they could. It's just that we can't do anything about it. We, we can't do a thing about them. If you, if, you okay. look, if you look at the 1952 flyovers in Washington, DC, a very famous mass sighting that occurred on multiple weekends and all the newspapers came in- Sorry, and what, were... what was that? Do you mind repeating that? It's 1952 flyover of Washington, D.C. It's a mass UFO sighting that was covered okay. on multiple weekends. We scrambled jets, fighter, fighter planes, and they, they literally could not catch up with these objects, with these uh, craft. So when I say flying with impunity, what I mean is that there is a technology that somebody has, an aerospace technology, and that we are incapable of defense or offense when we try to compete with the maneuverability of these craft. This is something that has been occurring a long time. Additionally, there are incursions on military bases, documented incursions on nuclear bases, where these vehicles, these craft have come in and have shut down our nuclear weapons. This happened at Maelstrom uh, Air Force Base, there's a guy named Robert Salas, who is the man in the Minuteman bunkers. And uh, he, he actually is a friend of mine. And we've gone through the case. It's now public. And uh, this is something to know that not that these things are hostile, just that they are much more technologically advanced than anything that we have. We work on reactionary propulsion systems. You know that? All airplanes, all aerospace, we still use the same rockets to get up out of Earth's orbit that we did 50 years ago. So this is a different technology. This represents not only a different technology, but this represents possibly a different advanced culture. And it's not something you can get around. The, the evidence is so weighty for so long that it, if people don't know about it, they haven't been paying attention. What do you think is the reason for the visitation? Oh, I have no idea. No idea. I could theorize all day long, man. Maybe they okay. like our truffles. Well, well, here's one. 
here's one reason why I used to not believe, and now I'm not saying I do believe. It's just that I remain open, it's not a matter remain of unconvinced. Belief, it's not a matter of belief. It's true whether you want to believe it or not. I mean, it's documented cases, more evidence for this than there is for most things on planet Earth. There's, there's more incursions. There's more evidence of UFO presence than almost anything. There's, there's so many cases over so much time with so many credible witnesses. Now we have film footage, radar footage. It's not a matter of belief. So why do you think that they look somewhat like us, that they're a hominid, that they have two eyes, that they have two, you know, there's something called convergent evolution, but it's not as if all intelligent species must converge to be like us. So I'm curious, why do you think it is that they look similar to us? I don't mean to be coy, but I don't know that they do. And the reason is when you first start looking into UFOs, you get all these ideas. You're like, they must be from other planets. Why are they visiting here? That's like, you know, UFOs 101, the first thought you got. Then you're like, oh, they've been represented to look kind of hominid, you know, whatever, bipedal creatures. The more you look into this, the more you realize all of that is, is uh, not supported with the evidence. It, it turns out we don't know if these craft are from other solar systems or if, they're, if it's stranger than that, if it's a dimensional reality if these things are popping in and out somehow of, of our uh, into our dimension. We don't know. We are so far behind in understanding it. Certainly, hard physical craft makes you think they're from other planets, for sure, could be. Maybe they're looking at us like they would um, livestock, like a commodity. Maybe they have some investment in the human species for some reason, and this is the why they show or flex on the powers of our nuclear weapons, which they've done a lot. Hmm. Uh, additionally, the other thing that what, you what do you mean up, when you say that? You mean that when we have done nuclear tests, the UFO sightings have increased? So there's a lot of uh, information and evidence of the UFO phenomenon engaging our nuclear process. So everything from coming into very famous cases, like I mentioned before, Maelstrom, uh, Maelstrom Air Force Base. Uh, there is a UFO, a disc that came in and shot a, a beam of light down into the nuclear silo. And again, don't believe me, this is documented fact. This came out through FOIA. This came out through information acts. And it shut down our nuclear weapons. It was a display of power. So why are they doing that, right? And they're not only doing it to us. There's also documented cases in Russia at the same time, at the height of the Cold War. So obviously there's some sort of um, message being sent where these whoever's occupying these craft, whoever's piloting these craft, whether it be a physical being or an artificial intelligence, whatever's piloting these vehicles, they're, they're showing us, hey, we can shut down your nukes at any time. So I would suggest everybody look into that. So you don't just look at this guy and say, oh, a crazy guy told me this. Look into it. This is something that is verifiable fact. And so, if any... If, sorry, if any of you who are listening are somewhat specialized in the UFO field, if you don't mind putting some of the sources because I can't get to them all, that'd be great. And then I can link them in the description. Okay, yeah. continue. Yeah, and then I just want to touch upon what you said because we're, we're going through this, this zeitgeist of like what UFOs are. So people are like, oh, they're, they're from other planets. I am unconvinced. The more I learn, I'm unconvinced. This is a phenomenon of just other people from other star systems coming here. It, the evidence does not suggest that when you really look at the totality of the evidence. 
Um, it's not just flying saucers, shaped as saucers. We have all shapes and sizes of vehicles that shouldn't be existing in our skies. Uh, again, Commander Fravor chased a Tic Tac shaped UFO. Um, there's a very famous case uh, called the Phoenix Lights. And this is a mass sighting of a triangular shaped craft, like a mile wide. We don't have anything like that in our arsenal. And people that you speak with who actually saw it, I interviewed a doctor and a lawyer, husband and wife, who, who saw it. And this, this thing came over, it touched mountain to mountain. So it was over a mile wide. And when it came over them, totally silent, it was like as if there was a bubble around them of, of, of silence, like all the crickets stopped everything. And they're looking at what would have been the bottom of this thing. And it looks like waving of glass, like they can see the stars through it. And there's a lot of reasons you know, that you can see different optics when you, when you see these craft because of how they're powered, how they distort, how they navigate is through a propulsion system based on gravity. And as we know, gravity distorts time and space. So you can get an optical illusion just looking up at these things. Back to the beings, because this is always exciting. People will say, well, they look like us, they're bipedal. No, that's not true. There, there are so many cases of the grays, right? That's what you're referring to, the, this popularization of the gray alien. And yeah, a lot of people have seen that. Betty and Barney Hill were the first abduction case to identify this type of being in the pop culture. However, there's been a lot of reports of different types of operators of these craft. They look very different than that. So I can't say for sure that we're being visited by another planet. I can't say for sure that these things look a certain way. Again, these could be artificial cyborg intelligences that are just uh, being controlled by a super intelligent AI. We don't know who's controlling and piloting these craft. They could be drones. When you say that it's not necessarily from outside of our solar system, then do you mean that it's us in the future? Or do you mean that it's, when you say another dimension, I'm unclear. So it's please yeah, speculate. Even, away. I'm unclear. I don't even know what another dimension means. I'm not that smart. I, I just know that the evidence doesn't suggest that this is just people from Zeta Reticuli star system coming in and visiting us because they like our mushrooms. I mean, I don't know. But people have theorized that these are extra temporal beings by the nature of time travel itself or by the nature of gravitational travel itself. You do have distortions in time and space. So some people say they're extra temporal. They're, they're, be, they're us from the future. I have no idea. I, the evidence doesn't suggest that to me. But the more exotic theories is this idea of extra dimensionals, that there are these kind of perforations in our reality, in our dimension, and that beings and yet craft can come through. Now, I, I don't know the physics of it. I don't know if that's true. But I do know that the study the government did on a place called Skinwalker Ranch in Utah, where a lot of these phenomena seem to express themselves, they were doing so because they saw deployment. They saw tears, what appeared like tears in the sky and craft and beings come through. Now, whether you believe this or not, our government did study this ranch for many years. Our, our, our uh, Defense Intelligence Agency did. They thought it was a real threat. So my point is, I don't know. The more I learn, the, the less I know about UFOs. Are they just beings from another planet? Or is it stranger, like uh, interdimensionals, extra temp temporals? I don't know. Have you heard any great ideas as to why they flex in isolated situations? For example, why don't they 
now? Why don't they come to a place like New York or Toronto and show themselves if they want to show their prowess? Why is it always in places where there's lack of footage or secrecy? Well, we no longer have, have lack of footage. You know, there, there's lack of high resolution footage, let's say. Okay, but that's a, another misnomer, you know, because the uh, the FLIR pod, the at FLIR pod footage, that's it's not like an iPhone. Those things are targeting systems. They're weapon systems. Those are multi-million dollar camera systems. They're just showing you a thermal, uh, you know, signature because of the, they want to look for thermal signatures to see what how these things are propelling. So if you had a normal camera, you'd get less information. So the footage, albeit square, black and white and grainy, gives us more information about that vehicle, the Tic Tac UFO in 2004 off of the West coast of California than if you had a normal camera. But to your point, your point is, well, if they're here, why haven't they landed on the White House lawn? Why haven't they said, hey, we're here? And a lot of people, you know, over centuries ha have asked that question is like, you know, what, what are these things and, and why aren't they presenting themselves? I would argue that they are that they do so in a very delicate and intricate manner, that they do so um, to a variety of individuals throughout time. Obviously, if they wanted to show great power, if they wanted to show gr a great force, uh, they could do so. They could shut down our nuclear weapons or turn them on. So there you go. Maybe there's a program in place. I would like to believe it's an educational program that over time we're being acclimated to this other reality? I don't know that to be true. Maybe, as I said before, there's a reason, like a prime directive, if you're a fan of you know, uh, Star Trek or that kind of thing, or non-interference. Maybe they're just making sure we're not blowing ourselves up. I don't know. Hmm. Have you explored any connections between psychedelics and aliens? Personally, yes. <laughs> I love some mushrooms. Um, because yeah. you know, there are different classes. There's like the mushrooms and there's LSD and then there's DMT, which is like psychedelic 2.0. And that one, apparently you can get to places where you can speak to other beings and other forms. And I'm curious I if I, I've never, I mean, they're I, I'm interested, I'm interested in, you know, the expansion of consciousness and what exists within our consciousness that is untapped. So, you know, my psychedelic experiences have been beautiful. I, I never have communed with the aliens or anything. I don't know if there's a direct connection. A lot of people have this, these great ideas that, you know, the planet was seeded from outer space on an asteroid by mushrooms to enhance, you know, homo sapien and bring them up to in, in intelligence. And I mean, that's, that's a Joe Rogan theory. Uh, you know, I, I don't know. Uh, I just know that people do draw that connection in that the expanse of our consciousness seems a little bit less limited when you open these doors of perception through things like psychedelics properly used, maybe ceremonially used and, and not frivolously used, you know, going to a rave or something. But I don't think they're the key and I don't think they're the answer. And I think that if we were gonna learn something from them about these visitors, we probably would have learned them thousands of years ago. Human beings have been doing psychedelics for thousands of years. So I wouldn't go jump and do a whole bunch of psychedelics to try to commune with the aliens. It's not going to work. <laughs> Why do you think it is that the government released some of the videos, the Tic Tac video in particular? I know specifically why. Uh, they released reluctantly these videos because of public pressure, pressure on the inside and pressure on the outside. There's a number of people who worked 
to get these videos released. It's not something that the Department of Defense and the intelligence agencies freely wanted to release. Why give the public information about something that one, we don't know that much about, and two, we certainly cannot control. It's a needs to be perceived as a threat from a military perspective until we can identify the pilots, the purpose and, and intent. So it's not just like the government's like, oh, UFOs are real, here you go. There's a lot of people that worked to get that information out. Remember, if you're a fighter pilot and you chase one of these things and you go start talking about it, people are gonna think you're not wrapped so tight and they're gonna take away your wings is what they used to do, stop you from flying. No fighter pilot wants that. So now they're trying to make it, there's actually new policies that have been promised to make it easier for people to report these near misses, they call them, like close encounters. And if we do that, then people won't be stigmatized as much and we'll get more data. Hmm. So you think it's because perhaps they want more data and they just want to destigmatize it? You know, I don't know that that's, I think they, they have way better technology than the civilian world. I don't think they need us anymore, you know, for UFO data. I think that they can track a, something the size of a golf ball coming in from, from outer space. So I, I don't think they need more data. I think it was just public pressure. People know this stuff is real. They see it. Pilots see it. Individuals see it. I mean, it's tracked on, on, on radar systems. It's hard to to continuously cover it up. Mm -hmm. You know, I want to defend you for a bit because you take a lot of flack and I feel like much of it is undeserved. We're going to get into some of the criticisms of you. <laughs> and I'm curious as to what you think about them. Sure. But the, the way that I view it is there are very few people with the breadth of knowledge that you have when it comes to this topic. And this topic is extremely prepossessing. It's frightening. It's also enrapturing. And I see you like, maybe George Knapp can rival you. So George Knapp is like you on Benadryl. And you are like George Knapp on Ritalin. <laughs> so I like George Knapp, at least from what I've seen of him. Uh, I don't, and I'm a fan of you, so I wanted to defend you. Against what? What have what people said? Let me know. <laughs> Tell me. Well, if you look at the comments in some of the Joe Rogan interviews, actually, I don't know specifically, but what, what do you see as some of the, the best criticisms of you? And, and what do you see as some of the worst? Which one do you not pay attention to? Uh, I, I've stopped paying attention to other people's perception of me a, a long time ago. You know, it, it's not important to my well-being. It's not important to my spiritual evolution or personal evolution. Uh, I, I love. I have friends that have completely different points of view th than I do, but social media really allows people to be so anonymous that they they speak like with authority about something that they don't have authority on. So. You know, yeah, man, people, you know, they hate me for my beard. They hate me for my attitude. They hate me for talking. If I say a word, you know, I shouldn't be able to say that word. So I don't really care. Um, sure, if I were to go in and read thousands of comments, you know, on the Joe Rogan podcast, you know, that would be the worst thing I could do in, in my life because it's just like people call you a shithead over and over. You might start believing it. But uh, ultimately, I know who I am. And, and, and the truth is, I'm a curious individual. I want to get closer to the truth. I'm not afraid of, of speaking up and, and saying what I believe to be true, or, or what I know, or what I don't know. Uh, my, my personality is not one to, to sit, I would get nothing done if I just sat back 
and let things come to me. I, I, I go for them. I try to dig in and find out the truth on things. And for some people that's off-putting. So yeah, I get love letters, you know, and then some that are not so love letters. And I think the ones that are very vocal are the ones that, you know, try to diminish me or, or, or you know, say that I'm somehow a problem. Uh, all I'm doing is, is making films. I, I, I can't believe people threat, you know, give death threats for making films. Whoever watches a film finds out the guy that made the film and threatens to kill him. I mean, that's crazy. It's so complimentary in, the, in some sense. Yeah, I, I don't consider that a compliment. I consider that like, a, you know, a mental disorder. I, you know, I, I don't know. People are very passionate about the UFO topic. And I think it strikes a lot of nerves. And I think that you see that polarization in social media comments. So what you're bringing up is a lot of people talk shit about me. That, that's what you're bringing up. And fact, that is true. I think in a disproportionate amount of people like to talk shit about my appearances or what I talk about or when I make films or stuff like that. Uh, I don't let that affect my, my work. If something is good, if, if it's like a constructive criticism, I guess they say, I'll better myself from it. I, that's right. A, and most of people who call themselves skeptics are more in the business of tearing down rather than building up. So it's not much constructive. Oh no. Yes. Yeah. Skeptics are like debunkers, people that just are trying to prove something without looking at all the evidence. I I'm hands off there. You can't help someone like that. You can't help them. It's, it's a mental sickness. It's a mental gymnastics. Well, to defend you and to defend debunkers, there is a place for them because you need to know your harshest critiques in order to strengthen your own theory. But then at the same time, I'm also a fan of, there's something called the Mayudic method. It's a Socratic method of eliciting ideas. And I don't see them as engaging in that. They may say that what we're doing is trying to get to the truth, but the truth is also in part a creative process and not just a purely destructive one. Yeah, and there's a difference between uh, somebody who's skeptical because believe it or not, I am extremely skeptical. I have to deal with so much bullshit, so many lies in the UFO field that I've, I've honed myself to have a bullshit meter. I mean, I am as skeptical as they come, but I'm not a debunker. You know, debunkers are people that try to just say what Commander Fravor saw was a reflection inside the hood of his uh, airplane. And, you know, forget the radar data, forget the other pilots that saw it, forget the internal investigations through the Defense Intelligence Agency. None of that matters. He saw a reflection inside his cockpit. That's ridiculous. These are ridiculous people saying ridiculous things to try to presuppose uh, you know, their, their initial assertion. I'm curious about, about how you structure your day. What time do you wake up and how long do you work for? And do you have to work in solid blocks? How do you get inspired? I don't advise anybody to take my advice on how to structure your life. See, um, I, I don't think I've got the, the model life. When it Forget comes about to advice. I'm just curious as to how you do it. Yeah, okay. Uh, well, I was a mixed martial athlete my whole life. So starting at nine years old, you know, up until 2004 is when I officially stopped, you know, training. Uh, I was a very dedicated physical individual. So from training to meditation, to diet, very strict. You know, I, I trained probably, you know, eight hours a day. So coming from that place, 
I had like a life-changing experience with illness. And then I, I started on a new path, a path of art and a path of film. And since that time, my daily habits have fluctuated, but the thing that remains kind of consistent is I, I don't sleep very much. I've always been one of those people that just work creatively best at night. I go to bed when the sun comes up or whenever I feel like it and I sleep as long as I want, but I, you know, I don't sleep a lot. You know, average is like five to uh, seven hours a night. Uh, I eat once a day. That's a, another thing that has always been, you know, kind of for me is uh, I don't, I eat when I'm hungry. I'm hungry once a day. Uh, I don't know. I like beer more than water. Do you meditate still? Uh, not in the same way. No, my, my life has uh, changed a lot, you know, from that physical discipline. Uh, I will say, though, that all those years of intensive training, both physical and then mental with meditation, I can kind of be doing anything. And I feel I'm in that meditative state. So if I have to clean my room or do the dishes, you know, that's when I take that silence, you know. Mm -hmm. What kind of meditation was it? Mindfulness, transcendental? Well, it was movement meditation. Uh, it all started initially with, with jujitsu. And then I developed a form of yoga that was handed to me for martial arts, for martial athletics. So it was a form of yoga called warrior yoga. And it basically trained me and then, then my, my students. And I opened up schools all around the U.S. and actually outside of the U.S. Uh, to use a movement meditation that incorporates breath and very strenuous exercise that, that work with the fine twitch muscles. And so I did that for probably 20 years. And, uh, you know, then I did seated meditation. I traveled all around the world looking for people to learn from, from martial arts to meditation, to healers, to seekers, to, you know, I've been all around the world. This to... is before your foray into filmmaking or this oh, is yeah, afterward? Yeah. Yeah. The, it's a joke. I'm a filmmaker. Like I, I had no idea that I would ever become a filmmaker. I, I was a mixed martial athlete. That's it. That's all done. And, uh, you know, then I, I got an illness and it, it transformed me. I, I was not able to, to be physical in the same way. It's called Valley fever. And, um, you know, a good year of my life, I could barely walk. So I was, it just changed my trajectory and I, I fell into filmmaking. And then I realized that, um, that I could do it and that I could do it well. How is it that you get the funding to do the films? Do it's you so just funny, go man. and I, I, it's all myself. What, what does it cost? I have to buy, buy a couple cameras and I have to travel places to talk with cool people. I mean, it, it's all my own personal. There's no big budget. I, I don't have a big company. It's me, a couple of cameras and, and, you know, travel. Yeah. I mean, I, I also, I survive off of real estate. I manage properties. People don't know that because they've never asked me, but yeah, this is, you know, I, when I was much smarter in my martial arts days, I bought a couple properties. So I, I manage those properties and uh, that funds my, uh, or, you know, fuels my, my film funding. Hear that sound? 
That's the sweet sound of success with Shopify. Shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise. Whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets, Shopify supports you at every point of sale, both online and in person. They streamline the process with the internet's best converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash theories. Razor blades are like diving boards. The longer the board, the more the wobble, the more the wobble, the more nicks, cuts, scrapes. A bad shave isn't a blade problem, it's an extension problem. Henson is a family-owned aerospace parts manufacturer that's made parts for the International Space Station and the Mars rover. Now they're bringing that precision engineering to your shaving experience. By using aerospace-grade CNC machines, Henson makes razors that extend less than the thickness of a human hair. The razor also has built-in channels that evacuates hair and cream, which make clogging virtually impossible. Henson Shaving wants to produce the best razors, not the best razor business. So that means no plastics, no subscriptions, no proprietary blades, and no planned obsolescence. It's also extremely affordable. The Henson Razor works with the standard dual-edge blades that give you that old-school shave with the benefits of this new-school tech. It's time to say no to subscriptions and yes to a razor that'll last you a lifetime. Visit hensonshaving.com everything. If you use that code, you'll get two years worth of blades for free. Just make sure to add them to the cart. Plus 100 free blades when you head to H-E-N-S-O-N-S-H-A-V-I-N-G dot com slash everything and use the code everything. Okay, so pretty much you just need money to live and then you like doing filmmaking. So you go out and filmmake and then you can oh, maybe yeah. sell some copies of the film, get some money that way. But either way, you're just self-funding because you're interested in it. Yeah, it was never a question. I didn't even know I was going to put movies out. The, the camera, it was, like a, it was like a gag. You know, the camera was like my passport into people's lives. Right. You know, I, I just wanted to learn from them. And it, I found out real quickly, you point a camera at them and they start talking. You know, they're telling you stuff they've never told their families before. So making a film was just me sharing my life experience, what I have learned, who I have met. And I was very lucky in that aesthetically, you know, companies like Netflix were like, fuck, this is good. And they were like, we're, we're going to put it out. So finally, I'm making money on my movies. Let's go through some of the creative process. What's going on on the board behind you? How do you structure your scenes? Um, and is that helping you structure your scenes? Well, yeah, it's kind of like a, a free association wall in that, um, you know, I, I get my, my base ideas, like even the title of a film, I go through a bunch of different versions. And then 
yeah, what I'll do is I'll, I'll structure the footage that I have. I, I think I do this probably the worst way possible in that I edit all my footage. So usually people film for a few years and then they take portions of it to piece together a film. Right. What I do is I come home after filming and I edit every single scene in its full length to perfection. So when it comes time to putting together a, a narrative in a movie, I already have these perfectly edited long form scenes and I'll go in and grab a piece from there, put it, sew it in there. So I edit all my footage. I don't ever let something sit. How do you choose when to put some of those interludes or some of those recreations? Like, for example, there was, this isn't a recreation, but you filmed, I think it was John Lear's kid with fake oh, blood. Yeah. Oh, yeah. As well yeah, as like, there's you experiment. walking into the desert with a voice. I'm just curious. Do you see them as, okay, I have scene A and scene B and you need to connect them. What makes you create a scene that wasn't filmed in field? Right. So, so really for me, it was when I was, let me, use a concrete example. So I was, the, the Bob Lazar film. So I've got a, a director's cut version. It's really long, right? And I'm like, okay, what can, it needs to be about an hour and a half. How can I tell this 30 year story in an hour and a half with this huge movie that, that I've already cut? So I really, it's about paring it down to be the most pointed. What are the most important parts? And, and I, I brought it down, down, down. Then I got to a point where I was like, I need to put something in there to show the moment that I got notified about the FBI raid on Bob Lazar's business. So I'm free to, to film. I have my, um, you know, my studio I can film in. So exactly like it happened to me that morning, you know, I brought the text onto my phone and filmed at different angles in that pink intro to the film. It was to give people this cinematic feeling of what it was like when I actually picked up my phone and called George Knapp and Bob. I was like, what the fuck just happened? So I insert these parts to the movies based upon kind of what I feel is lacking, but it's really easy, man. Pick up a camera. The world is out there. There's a lot to film. How long is this director's cut? Is it ever coming out? I don't know. I, I, I think I'll put it out in sections. So the Bob Lazar, Area 51 and Flying Saucers, that's the name of the Netflix film. You know, imagine there's thousands of hours of footage with Bob that I have surrounding him, his life, his entire family, all the other investigations that I've done surrounding Bob's story. The movie's an hour and a half. So what I've been doing is on my Netflix or my um, YouTube channel, I've been putting out extended bonus scenes or deleted scenes, I'm calling them. And so mm. that's so that people get to see these longer interviews with Bob. Yeah. Okay. Now just to get into some nitty gritty, I'm curious as a filmmaker, does that violate any of your contract with Netflix? How is it that you can reuse the same footage or you don't? Oh, oh no, I'm a completely independent filmmaker. I, my contract with Netflix, I let them, I let them use the movie for a certain amount of time. See, I own everything. I own all my own content. You know, I allowed them to use the hour and 30 uh, movie to put on their platform, but I am the, the owner of all my own content. So that, that's how it works is I, I gave them the hour and 30 section. Cool. Let's get to this background one more time because I'm curious about it. Why don't you take me through a specific example? How is it that you make the connections? Uh, to, to make the connections to what? You said that what you have is almost like somewhat of a madman approach where you put different pictures on the wall. Maybe you draw lines and you put together, I'm assuming either a theory or a theme, or you're trying to prove a certain point. Can you take me through an example sure. of your creative process? 
Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, well, the main thing really is, again, it, it's I'm trying to uplift the visual aesthetic for UFO films, right? So I, I want people to be enticed by the look and the feel, kind of the playfulness of a film. I don't want it to be this dry, ancient aliens kind of, this happened on this day. You know, I, with my films, I try to give a little bit of personal character to it. So that's why I had like Mickey Rourke, you know, the controversial Mickey Rourke, you know, narrate with like a mouthful of gravel in my film, you know, he, I can barely understand him. A lot of people say, that's the point, shithead. You know, the, the point is to get people to listen and, and be enthralled by his strange uh, voice. And he was talking poetically. He wasn't just giving you factual things about the movie. I wrote him a script that's like super poetic and weird and psychedelic. And um, so, my you're talking about my chalkboard wall so wherever i've lived i've done a, a coat of uh, magnetized paint and then i've done chalkboard paint and i get neodymium magnets so that they're very strong super magnets and i can put up pictures and kind of use the, the wall as kind of like how the movie's playing out and and how to structure scenes to some degree everything from music and the, the soundscaping that i've done which is very intricate if you've listened to any of you my do films, your own music well, I, I work with a couple musicians that give me the same uh, uh, beats in sections of tones, not like usually full songs. And then I weave all of those hundreds of sections into songs. There's a guy named Red, Blue, Black, Silver, who I worked with for both Hunt for the Skinwalker, which is my film on Hulu, and then the Babazar Air 51 and Flying Saucers. And he sometimes gives me larger songs, but he gives me a lot of just audio clips. So I, I soundscape. The, the films over the months by using certain tones for certain people to create, to create an emotion. So yeah, the, I guess the wall is kind of where I can take these investigations and say, I've talked to this person. They said this, this is the next person I have to call. They're going to connect me with them. It's like an active board for me when I'm doing these investigations. Cause a lot of times they're happening during the filming. So same with the Bob Azar thing. When, when I got the guy who did Babazar's security clearance to work at Area 51, at first he was gonna go on camera with me. And then he, he basically decided not to go on camera with me because uh, it was explosive what he had to say. He goes, I remember Bob, I did his security clearance. So all I could do in the film is report on that. Trust me or not, I talked to the guy. His name is Mike Figpin. And I got a hold of him after 30 years, I was able to find him. You mentioned George Knapp. George Knapp is an investigative reporter out of Las Vegas, Nevada. He's the guy that broke the Area 51 story in Bob Lazar. You had mentioned him earlier in the interview. Uh, George Knapp has been a mentor to me. So George has, has helped me with my investigations. And we've I've done a couple of films with him. He's featured in, in two of my three major films. Right. You used some so, of his footage in Skinwalker, correct? Absolutely. That, that was footage the world had never seen. He had been documenting Skinwalker Ranch for like, 20 years and uh, no one who wasn't allowed to put the footage out, but I was able to get it for that film. Yeah. Do you think aliens have communicated with our government explicitly? Yeah. I'm curious about that myself. I'm not sure. I, I think it's, I think the, look, it's step one time, man. Step one is the general public needs to get caught up. They need to get caught up with the fact that the UFO presence is real that we are being visited on a regular basis by an intelligence that are flying hard 
craft that are far outpace our technology. And we think we know how they work. Our government thinks they know how it works. They can't replicate okay. it. But as far as you know, there's no documents that say that the aliens have explicitly communicated with USA or Russia. There's nothing that I would concretely say, you know, a classified document that I would say that's probably real. I, I have obtained documents that say as much, but the, the, the authenticity of these documents will always be in question because you can't track right. the source. And the documents, are they implying some sort of collusion between the aliens and the government or is this something else? Okay, so anybody that wades into the UFO world really, really needs to protect themselves from disinformation. There have been active programs of disinformation that have been admitted to by our government. So okay. as far as I know, there's Project Blue Book. Is that what you're referring to? No, no. Or is but, that different? Okay, so this is important. Project Blue Book was the, it ended in 1969, supposedly. It was the United States government study of UFOs. Now, what people don't know is that, or a lot of people don't know, is that there were two UFO study programs before Project Sign and Project Grudge. Sign as in sine wave or S-I-G-N? S-I-G-N, okay. sign. Project Sign and Project Grudge, and then it was Project Blue Book. And this is the one that's very famous that everybody knows about, where the US, where the US government said the famous saying where J. Allen Hynek, who ran Project Blue Book, said that he, you know, one of the UFOs was swamp gas. You ever hear that? Oh, it's probably swamp gas. It's a it's a very famous like okay. thing that people say to debunk UFOs. J. Allen Hynek, who who ran Project Blue Book, later apologized for that because he, he knew the UFO topic was real and he was mandated to, quote unquote, demystify the UFO topic to the public. So Project Blue Book was a sham. And now everybody knows that, that there, there are cases that they can't describe, but their mandate was to try to calm the American public. And, okay, and wait, this wait, goes back again, I got... Sorry, I have to cut you off because I'm trying to understand this. So there's Project Blue Book. And what that was, was a disinformation campaign by the American government? Ultimately, 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 it's been revealed that it was at best uh, a disinformation project in that this was the official study of UFOs by the United States government. And people involved in that uh, process, like J. Allen Hynek, later revealed that their mandate was to suppress the information, was to minimize it, was to come up with prosaic explanations. And this is what that term swamp gas comes from. Now, our government, the United States government, also told us that our study of UFOs ended in 1969. Mm -hmm. We now know that to be a lie. I told you about OSAP and I told you about ATIP. Those programs have now been acknowledged. So our, our government did not stop studying UFOs. Of course they didn't. They represent a technology that's far superior to what we have. We want that technology. Whoever gains the technology that, that is shown in these UFOs, they win. They win everything. It is a technology that cannot be competed with. It can be weaponized. If these things do travel using gravity wave amplification, if that's true, 
then this can be weaponized. So in the history, okay. go ahead. No, I was gonna. It's gonna make a joke. It's gonna, it's Go ahead, I like weapon, jokes. <laughs> speaking of weaponized, one of my first questions to you was: Has your curiosity been weaponized? I asked. The, oh yeah. I asked the audience for a few questions, and someone said that. Ask him if his curiosity has been weaponized. I didn't get it until I watched a few interviews. And my curiosity has been radicalized. Are you kidding me? What I've learned through all of this? Are you kidding me? Yeah, of course, man. Um, so that's so for your audience that doesn't know, I am uh, accused, rightfully so, of saying weaponize your curiosity almost every time I talk. And I make a point of doing it. I think it's hilarious. And I think I like to see people get so upset about it. What does weaponization have anything to do with it? You know, <laughs> look, your curiosity is your greatest weapon, man. It, it's what allows you to ask questions, right? If you don't ask questions, you're never gonna even get close to the answers. So I always make the joke, weaponize your curiosity. Yes, my motherfucking curiosity has been weaponized. I got a few IMDb credits here for you. Apparently you're still working on them. So there's Extraordinary Beliefs. It says it's a TV series or filming, Immaculate Deception filming, Indelible filming, Truth Embargo filming, Storm Area 51 filming, and then post-production on Looking Up and Moonwalker. Is that true? Or are you just pretty much working on yeah, some other and, projects? Yeah, and, and I think people are going to be really upset if they try to put me on a, on a timeline. I'm one person. Yeah, I'm filming on all of those. Some of them I think are probably finished filming and you know depending on where i put my uh, effort next you know i'll come out with that film for example um immaculate deception i filmed as i said for seven or eight years with john lear that's that movie uh i i could make that movie right now i could cut that movie it, it's not the time for it it's not the time for that movie um so all of those are projects of mine that are in the in the phase where they can start being edited, but I don't know what I'm coming out with next. I, I haven't chosen. How do you decide when the time is right to release a particular film? Right. Uh, so for Hunt for the Skinwalker, which was my second big film came out on Hulu. I knew it was time for that film to come out because if you watch the beginning of that film, we announce that there's about to be a paradigm shift about UFOs in the public. That is before uh, the New York Times article came out identifying the UFO study programs. So because I had prior knowledge that the U.S. government was going to announce through the New York Times that this was going to be announced, I knew that film had to be made. Because what people didn't know is that a lot of those programs specifically tied back to Skinwalker Ranch. Skinwalker Ranch had been a mystery before my film. Nobody had ever seen footage from inside of Skinwalker Ranch come out into the public domain for 25 years. Never happened until my film. So I oh. knew it was, yeah. No, I continue, was continue, please. I knew it was time to release that film. I knew it was time for that film because I had pre-knowledge that these um, UFO cases were going to come out through the New York Times. Speaking as a filmmaker, how long did it take you to develop the relationship so that you can get inside knowledge? Because if you're just someone from the outside, even if you say, well, I'm making a documentary on topic X, you'll get a surface level clearance, let's say, and you don't have the connections. How long did it take you to build it? And what'd you do? What tactics? I have a, I have a charming personality. Can't you tell? That's my best tactic. Great, uh, great, no, great. I'm not. Look, I'm, I'm not in the military. I don't have a security clearance. I've never signed an NDA for anything. I mean, you know, I... I, I'm lucky. I, I, I have a good mentor in, in George Knapp. He's certainly opened a lot of doors for me with, with you know, uh, witnesses, I'd like to say, you know. 
Uh, and, and I think just over time, I've been persistent about it. I've been interested in UFOs before I started making movies. So I, I look, I've been able to be led into the Annapolis Naval Academy and, and sit in on classes, uh, you know, that have to do with aerospace. I've, I've, I've made great connections with individuals who, who would have access to these UFO-based programs within our, within our government. And I, I've never burned anybody. I've never mm. spoken out of school. So the people that have come forward to me, I've never burned them. So imagine what I'm showing you in my films and the information that I'm bringing forward. There's a lot more that I've never said because I, I would never burn somebody for, for giving me information. Has the government ever contacted you or followed you or have you received any threats or strange occurrences like Lazar had his doors opened and his gun that was in his glove compartment put on his seat and so on? Yeah, no, I, I, I've only been assisted uh, by individuals w within government and agencies. I, the only strange thing that ever happened to me was that that raid on Bob Lazar right in the middle of my filming. I mean, they, they waited. We have the documents that show that they were watching, you know, in preparation for that raid while I was there in Michigan uh, filming Bob. But they waited till the cameras were gone. I mean, last thing they wanted is somebody filming the, the, this raid. Uh, so uh -huh. that's the only images we have is, was Bob and his employee just snapped some, some photos during it. And that's where you see the 15 or so or more people. Uh, so I've never had any negative thing. People actually call me with tips all the time, whether they can go public or not go public. Uh, people now come to me and, and that's interesting. So I think just over time, people have realized, and they've told me this, people call me after the Lazar film. They're like, I know Bob's telling the truth and here's my little one thing I can tell you, but I don't want anybody to know it came from me. And they and, contact um, you over phone, text, email, or in person or letter or what? Uh, it, it always begins with email or usually begins with email. So they, 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 they text my editor, Katrina, and then she'll sort through, there's, you know, hundreds of messages a day. A lot of them are from crazy people. And then, uh, you know, she'll send me the ones that are, you know, seem promising. And then some people want to talk on Signal or an encrypted app or ProtonMail. Okay, let's get to this Bob Lazar raid because I was unclear about something when it was shown in the film. So let's say you were talking to Bob, some forested area, if I recall, I could be wrong. Either way, yeah. whatever, you're talking to Bob. I remember seeing yeah. trees. So there's some trees. Is it away from his house? Or is it right in his backyard? Yeah, well, he, he in Michigan, he had a large property. And the scene you're, you're talking about, just for your audience. So Bob Lazar has always claimed that these craft are, are gravity driven, that there's a, a gravity wave amplification propulsion system in these saucers that, that he was able to, to work on or explore the power of propulsion in, in one of them. He also claimed that the craft was fueled by a super heavy element called element 115, but a version of element 115 that is stable, that, that where its half-life is significantly long enough to, to, to have these properties. So Bob has always claimed that. In the film, I was asking him specifically about that and about mm -hmm. the, the claim that he got a piece of the stabilized 115 out of Los Alamos, actually. People thought it's Site 4, Air 51. It's not. He, he claimed he got a piece out of Los Alamos National Laboratory where they were machining the Element 115 
to send back to the, the test site. I see. But the people at Los Alamos didn't know what they were machining. Correct. Which is a contracted job. According to Bob, okay. it was shipped under a code name LA-1000. And they would tell the machinist that it was an exotic armor. And machinist is not going to sit there with spectroscopy and like figure out, you know, the, the composition. It's okay, cool. I'm going to machine this precisely. So they would bring it in and they'd, they'd machine it in a very specific way that you can see kind of detailed on my YouTube, uh, probably on my YouTube site or a little bit in the film. And uh, Bob did claim to, to get at least one piece out from Los Alamos. And he's been very cagey about that. Although he did do an experiment, a cloud chamber test, and there were witnesses, and I've spoken with all of them. There are witnesses in the room with him at home. And I'll tell you this, Bob believed that he had a piece of element 115. His friends who were scientists, many of them, scientists, George Knapp saw the experiment as well. Uh, they believed that he had a, a very unique element that, that had properties that had yet to be seen. And this is before laser pointers, right? So they, they were doing a cloud chamber test to show how light uh, bent because of the, I guess, gravity differential with, with, the, with the piece of 115. If he had a laser pointer back then, you could just shine a laser, a laser over it. And, and if it was real, it would have bent. But they, they didn't at that time. It weren't readily available. This was 1989. So they did a cloud chamber experiment in Bob's backyard. I mean, Bob's a smart guy. He built uh, two particle accelerators, uh, one in New Mexico and one in his uh, bedroom in Las Vegas. Uh, you know, he's a very technical guy and, and a really interesting scientist. And uh, so that talk in my movie, in the forest, you know, was, I don't know, uh, 600 meters away from Bob's front door, right? It's a pretty significant distance on his property. And we thought our conversation was private. And mm -hmm. in my film, I, I just show you a little bit. I show the viewer that we are talking about element 115. We mm -hmm. are talking about the idea that he might have retrieved a sample of element 115 and if you believe that he did, that might give a rational explanation for the intense FBI multi-agency raid of his facility, which happened the next day, the, the day I left. So uh, that was the point in the movie. Now, of course, I, I fast forwarded through that scene in the movie. I am not showing the contents of that conversation. Okay, so is the insinuation that the FBI or the CIA or whatever it may be was listening to you, even though you were 600 meters away from the house? Oh, they were, yeah. So, yeah. Like with some sort of shotgun microphone or we, we or don't place transmitters? Man, I got to tell you, it drove us crazy. I mean, Bob initially thought I talked. You know, Bob, Bob, mm -hmm. I, the finger, all the fingers were pointed at me from Bob and Bob's friends. You know, I was the guy with camera equipment, recording devices. And when they came and said, we know you had a conversation and we know, you know, some of the specifics of that conversation, uh, it terrified us. Okay, so let me break this down for you so it doesn't sound so cloak and dagger. We go out to where we thought was remote on Bob's property out of precaution. We're about, to, okay, we're about to talk about element 115. We're about mm -hmm. to talk, if Bob Lazar got element 115 out of Los Alamos, this, this he super heavy element that apparently was brought here, 500 pounds was brought here from somewhere else, 
And our government was, was using it in these non-terrestrial craft. I mean, it's a wild thing. And if Bob Lazar is telling the truth, just consider that for a second. Just for a second, consider that Bob Lazar is telling you exactly what happened. The United States government is reverse engineering UFOs, alien spacecraft. They're trying to, and that they, they have some. They have physical evidence of an advanced civilization, not from this earth, and that these craft are, you know, show a technology that's way beyond what we have. Just imagine that he's telling you the truth. And then he says he got a piece of element 115 out of Los Alamos. Now, our government would want that back. Yeah. So the, the idea is this is the one thing that's keeping him alive is that he's got this piece stashed somewhere. So he's about to, to tell me about this. And we're going to talk through this. And we're going to talk about how you could get this out to the public. That's the premise here. So no shortcuts. That's the premise. So out of caution, I was like, well, Bob, if you are telling the truth, let's, let's just go out of your house. And he's like, well, no, one's, no one cares. This is 30 years ago. You know, nobody, nobody cares about me anymore. And I'm like, well, let's just go anyway. So we, so we go out you know, to this forested area. And then as I'm recording with him, I'm like, you know, we have cell phones. I'm like, maybe I should put those cell phones like over there. So I take the cell phones, we turn them off, and I ditched them about 200 meters away. And we kind of joked about it. Like, who cares? No one's watching. No one cares, right? And then come to find out the next day, he gets raided by multiple agencies. Now, you can believe, you know, uh, Bob's version, uh, you know, my version, or, you know, the, the, the documents that we have found. The, they say they were there on an unrelated issue. All these agencies were there because of thallium, that, you know, that he might have thallium you know, that he was selling. He didn't, uh, not, not in the way that, that they said. So in Bob's experience, this is not the first time he's been raided by multiple agencies and people that have been on those raids. I was able to talk with one and they're like, this is the weirdest raid in the world. We didn't know what we were looking for, but the way Bob experienced it, and you have to take Bob's word on it or, or don't, I don't care, but this is what he said, is that they came in that they could care less about this potential thallium that they, they cordoned off in grids his entire building, which I know to be true. I talked to the employees. I have some photos and they were looking for um, the element 115. This is what he said on Larry King and, and I stand by it as well. And the one thing they did was they repeated, I'll just say the best way to say it is they repeated back to him part of our conversation and it was mystifying i mean bob immediately thought i i leaked the feds mm -hmm. they mentioned your name or they just said you recently talked to someone and this is what you said uh, or we I, hear I, I through wanna, the grapevine I have, to, I have to dance around this part but word for word the conversation was relayed to bob there was no doubt that there was recording of that conversation now, it's not so weird when you find out through official documents that they had been um, surveilling both his home and his place of business two days prior to the raid when I was there. Mm -hmm. So now, how did they achieve that recording? I, I have some friends that, that do these types of raids in, in federal agencies, and I have spoken with them, and mm -hmm. I have learned 
that there are multiple ways to do this. Multiple ways. For example. For example, they, they have a very cool technology that you can point at any window in any house and the vibrations of the, of the voice can be picked up off of those windows. Now, obviously we were in the woods, right? So how did they get it? Um, we, we have theorized over and over. We've looked into the technologies. We thought it could be our phones. And that, that's the number one culprit right now. We, we thought our phones had been turned into listening devices because they knew a certain amount. If they had heard that whole conversation, they would have no need to speak with Bob. Okay. So, so clearly at some point, why, what do you mean by that? If they'd heard the whole conversation, they wouldn't need to speak with them. Meaning that Bob conveyed to me the details of the element 115 and potentially if he had some where he stashed it. I see. I see. I see. So they wouldn't need to contact Bob. Okay. Because I was thinking that perhaps what it is, is you said that you go home and you edit your footage I know for me, I upload my footage simultaneously so it's syncing so I don't lose a backup. And I thought perhaps when you went home, you sunk it up somewhere and they have access to that. And I was so paranoid about that. First of all, Bob Lazar had never let anybody into his life to film with him, right? Yeah. So I was, every card I had was connected directly to a computer that never went online. There is no way. Interesting. Yeah, there is no way that, that anybody was able to get that out of the ether, you know? So uh-huh. first thing, you know, I thought is we, we went out to dinner that night, you know, did somebody come and like get my computer card? And yeah. like, you know, yeah. But it was, it was there right where I left it. And I don't see that as a possibility at this time. I mean, he didn't have security cameras up at, on his home, but I, I don't see that as a possibility. And, and just the mere fact that they decided to look at his place of business for the element yeah, 115 yeah, yeah. they they didn't hear the rest of the conversation i see now, mm-hmm. i've never talked about this but that is that is uh, how i understand it you know someone that doesn't want to believe bob this is just another reason to not believe him this this sounds so crazy but i'll tell you it happened and it happened exactly the way i'm telling you and i'm dead sure that our conversation was monitored that they were able to record that conversation and that they had full knowledge of that conversation until I put the phones to the side. And that's why I think it was the phones because, and, and by the way, if you write to the end, ah, 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 okay. Yeah, yeah, I see. At, I so see. The, the second part of that recording, which is by the way, now spread out on multiple drives in multiple States, you know, it's never going away that footage. Like mm-hmm. I have that footage. There's no stopping it from coming out at it. Like it will come out one day uh, when the time is right. But it, you know, the, the point is, I think, it was the phones. There are cool ways to mm-hmm, get mm-hmm, audio. Mm-hmm. It makes the most sense. It makes the most sense. It, it does. But if you, if you, if you appeal to the NSA who, who, who dictates some of these FISA warrants and, 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 you know, these phone taps, they can never confirm nor deny. So you, you'll never get any information. So I, I'm unable to get any information if that is true or not, if it was the phone. Mm, too bad, too bad. Oh, wait, why do you say that? This is what's keeping Bob alive. This is something I've thought about. And I'm, I'm sure many people as well. It's like, okay, if let's say Bob is telling the truth, why doesn't the government from day one or day two just kill him? There's many ways that you can kill someone, like, you know, Breaking Bad, you can just give someone ricin and make it look like they right. have the flu, or especially right now during COVID. Yeah. So why is that, he still 
Yeah, that would Why be a bad, that would be a bad idea. A smart man like Bob, you know, has ways to to get information out if he were to go missing. So, um, you know, look again. This is a this is a different. It's a very touchy situation. Bob wouldn't even talk about LMN 115. Everything I'm saying now was was off limits when I first started filming with him. Because if you believe Bob, this is real world implications. Somebody had to get him the 115 out of Los Alamos, a machinist, that could be very problematic. Like that's a real problem. That's a, you get charged, you get thrown away for smuggling. I mean, that's mm -hmm. a bad thing. So if we believe Bob and I'm okay, if people don't, like I'm totally cool if people don't believe him, yeah. I, you know, I wouldn't believe him if I didn't have the direct access to everybody in his life, you know, uh, where I realized the story is true. Um, so I don't expect anybody to believe it, but if we just suspend disbelief for a moment and we believe Bob, I would project that one of the reasons why Bob Lazar was not killed for, for speaking out is because one, who's going to believe it? You know, before December of 2018 and the US government studying UFOs, who's going to believe Bob? Not many people. So is he really a threat? But a physical piece of evidence I would suspect that is the reason why he's not just given rise and to be killed because they know he probably has a backup plan. So if you are to believe Bob, I would think that's a, that's an important thing. I would be careful if I was Bob. And I see. And, yeah. Well, when I was watching, I think it was called Immaculate Deception with John Lear. Yeah. I, yeah. I put out okay. an episode of that. Yeah. When I was watching that, there was this clip with him saying behind me, maybe soon there's going to be some UFOs flying that reminded me of what Bob did. Is he doing the same thing that Bob did where he gets some of his friends to film it because he knows the schedule of when these crafts are going to fly? No, no. I think, I think John Lear's got a few screws loose. I mean, people are going to hate me for saying that, you know, uh, but he does. I mean, I, I, I love John. He's like my crazy uncle. You know, he, he does not love me anymore. He's very mad at me. You know? uh, because... Oh, it's a long story. It's, you know, John, John's a conspiracy theorist. He was very difficult to work. He sabotaged his own movie, the movie I was working on for seven years. He just killed it dead in the water because of his actions. I mean, he's, John's pretty wild. Are you allowed to talk about that? Yeah, I, I'm under no contract. Yeah, well, okay. What do you mean? How did he sabotage it? Um, well, I had filmed with John for, for many years and I had a really good relationship with him. And when it came down to, you know, kind of his life rights and, and finally um, relinquishing and letting me make the film, he decided to sign him over on a napkin to his daughter, basically. So when I had brought in other producers and people to come help bring this to life, you know, it was kind of like, you know, maybe there's money to be made was his thought or something and just sabotage the whole thing. So that's my version of it, at least. It, it's sad because he, he was a friend and I really, um, I care for John, but he's, I think he wanted to be the star of the movie. And when I made the Bob Lazar movie, I think he was very upset the movie wasn't about him. Yeah. Oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, you know, for the record, I love John Lear. I wish him well. I, I care about him very much. Um, just unfortunately, he's sabotaged a lot of things in his life. And this is one of them. Hmm. As for why John Lear hasn't been killed, why do you think that is? Uh, he's not credible. But in the beginning, you said, look, this is someone who worked for the CIA as a pilot. And oh, he yeah. has here are some world records that he has. Oh, yeah. No, he, yeah. he's done. He's had phases of credibility for sure. Like uh, 
you know, look, he's an exceptional man. At one point, he was the youngest person ever to climb the Matterhorn. Like the guy was an explorer. He was right about Area 51, uh, the term Area 51. He was right about what they were doing there. He actually was able, he, look, he comes from a, the Lear family. So at the news agencies in Vegas, like the guy has some credibility, you know, he was right about some of the back engineering of the MIG, the, the Russian MIG fighter they were doing. And he got photos of the, uh, the stealth fighter and, and leaked them to a guy named Ned Day in, in Las Vegas, a reporter who was George Knapp's mentor. So hmm. he, he had this credibility of being a guy that goes out in 1977, takes the best photo ever of Area 51 at lake level. I have that photo. I mean, this is like, um, hold on, just take me one second, but I think it's worthy. Those are the neodymium magnets, man. Those things are strong. Cool. Uh, this is a photo from John Lear. This is the night in 1977, the year I was born. He went to Air 51 at lake level. The only security was a chain, a hanging chain. And he sits right at the lake level and he takes a panoramic of photos and he sees in the distance a car coming and it's kicking up dust, right? So you can see it coming from a long way away. And he's like, oh, they're coming. So he took that, the camera, he took the film, put it under his ashtray, put in a new uh, roll of film, took the identical pictures. And when they rolled up on him, they said, we, we know who you are. You got a camera. Give us the film. Pops open the camera, gives him the film. They never asked if he had another duplicate set mm. inside his ashtray. It's a great idea. Right. So he comes out 1977 and gives us the best photos ever of Groom Lake, Area 51, at close range. Mm -hmm. And again, nobody had ever done that before. He wrote to me. Uh, he said, uh, Jeremy, it's Groom Lake, you moron. Let's go Wednesday. And we went. <laughs> that photo doesn't seem to show anything incriminating other than that there are buildings at Area 51. No, no. Right? It, just, it just, in 1977, it, it, show, it, it shows Groom Lake. Like, there has not been a photo of Groom Lake since John Lear's 1977 photos that have been that close up. So it was just at the time in particular, it was, it was really crazy he's exposing this military base that, that people yeah. didn't even acknowledge the name of so so john had credibility and then when he came forward to george knapp about ufos no one wanted to touch it george's bosses didn't want to touch it george's boss famously said or his mentor ned day famously said if any of this were real i would have known about it which was like the, is like the worst you know attitude because it was real. Area 51 was real. What's going on there? And he didn't know about it. So that's when George Knapp picked up all the UFO stuff and did his first report. When you said that UFOs are just some small part of a larger yeah. project, Phenomenal. what did you mean? Phenomena. What do you mean? I like to say to the phenomenon, I believe from, well, the evidence shows me that UFOs is a very small aspect of a much larger phenomenon. Okay. So what I mean by that is that UFOs appear to be part of a larger phenomenon, meaning UFOs are, are kind of an auxiliary uh, implication of a much larger reality. So this idea that what we're seeing are machines from other planets, I, I, I'm unconvinced. What we may be seeing is an alternate reality. It, you know, maybe it is something closer to 
you know, dimensional travel, there seems to be another version of reality that is occurring and that somehow once in a while they, they perforate and they pop through into our reality. And this is not just from a cursory look at the UFO phenomenon. This is from talking with thousands of close encounter eyewitnesses who tell me that this is something bigger than just flying machines. To give you an example, at Skinwalker Ranch, the report is that a piece of the sky opened up like a tear and out of this tear came beings, you know, uh, came craft. So, so UFOs is a symptom. It, it's part of this alternate reality, the, the phenomenon as I call it, but it's, it's not just about UFOs. UFOs represent this phenomenon. What other phenomenon are there? Bigfoot, ghosts? Yeah, I, I don't but know. they're related we, to, I mean. Yeah, yeah I, I wish I, I, I knew or I could stand firm in saying, I know this to be true. Skinwalker Ranch is the best example of this because you have UFO phenomenon, but you also, you also have cattle mutilation, which, which is often associated with lights in the sky. So, so cattle mutilation is something, as an example, concrete example, cattle mutilation. Is this a UFO phenomenon or is this a government experiment? Or is this a private corporation that's going around and mutilating these cows and draining their blood in the dead of night? Nobody has ever been caught during these cattle mutilations that are homogenous. They are the same across the board. They're drained of blood. There's two types of incisions. They take the same things, the genitals, the sexual organs, piece of the cheek and an eye and an ear. It's the same thing. So, this is associated with the UFO phenomenon because the farmers and people that, that are cattle ranchers, they see UFOs oftentimes during these mutilations. So I can't separate them. So, okay, again, so we got UFOs tied yeah. with cattle mutilation. Okay. That one I can understand. I mean, I've, seen, I've heard of that since I was a kid. Okay. What else that's tied I, to I UFOs? I don't I, What else tied to UFOs? I mean, I don't know. Uh, the, the experiences are so wild, man. I mean, when people, you know, get engaged with these uh, entities, you know, people have had, it's not just hard, it's not like craft come in there and no one's flying them. I'll give you an example. The aerial school, this is an amazing case in South Africa and, uh, you know, 80 kids or something saw these craft land in the field by their school. All these kids, the BBC came the next day and interviewed these kids with head of Harvard psychiatry, John Mack. John Mack gets out there. They interview the kids. They all say the same thing. These craft came down and they were little beings on the craft with these huge almond-shaped eyes. And I personally know two of the children, they were at the time children, and then now they're adults. And they, they, they were within meters. I mean, within four feet. One of them was in four feet of, of one of these beings bipedal being wearing like a suit, a gray alien kind of thing with these huge almond shaped eyes that, that she said mesmerized her. This is somebody who's not lying. I mean, all of these kids saw it again, John Mack at Harvard psychiatry went and he was head of Harvard psychiatry and he went, interviewed them with the BBC. It's a historic case. And what was his conclusion? That they're telling the truth, okay. that they saw exactly what they said they saw. You can't make it up across all these kids with the same explanations. And uh, Liesl and Salma are the two uh, females who were there as kids that, that I know now, current day, yeah. and it has affected their lives. If you look at footage of them talking to John Mack on the BBC, and they're talking about how they were mesmerized, and then 
they, they showed them like images in their, in their mind's eye, like a movie of the destruction of our planet and how we have to be more careful with our ecosystem and our earth and we need to treat it right or we're doomed. Well, you know, back when this happened, that wasn't a huge topic of conversation like it is today with climate change. So these children took on the burden of telling people what these aliens told them. So that's a good example of a phenomenon that goes beyond just the hard craft, right? And goes into the beings operating them. Why did these, I know you're just going to have to speculate, but why do you think these aliens came to these African children instead of going to some places that could make a difference now, given, let's say, they're, a cor- they're the CEO of some corporation that's exporting negative externalities in the form of pollution right, at a much right, higher right. rate than these 80 African children? Why do you think that they went to them? Yeah, I mean, again, you were right. I have to speculate. I mean, I have no inside yeah, knowledge. Yeah, but that's okay. Who cares? Who cares? Let's speculate. Okay. It's fine. I'm curious. Okay. Yeah. Um, Give me some ideas. Sure, sure, sure. Let me toy with it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So total speculation. I mean, I'm not trying to be evasive about it. I just like, you know, really, when I don't know something, dude, I don't fucking know it. So here's the deal. These beings, these craft, these entities, maybe they're all playing the same game and on the same team. Maybe they're not. Maybe there's competing agendas. And maybe this is a learning process. Maybe it's... It's so weird to think that, that we might not have a, a, even a most simple grasp on what's going on with UFOs and this, this alien presence, whatever this is. Maybe it's so much stranger. Again, maybe we're a commodity. Maybe humanity itself. Uh, in one of the documents that Bob Lazar read, it, it called us containers. You know, containers. Of yeah, what? yeah, I heard that. Yeah. Containers of what? Mm-hmm. You know, blood. Are we containers of, of souls? I don't even know what a soul is. What is a soul? So maybe one of the, the crazier theories, you know, maybe we're containers for the maturation of souls, like a nice wine, you know, and we're a commodity in some way, just like we would, you know, make sure that our livestock doesn't spread a disease that, that eliminates them. You know, we're being, you know, these entities are being sure that we don't blow up our earth with our nuclear weapons because somehow we're important to them. The nefarious version is we're a commodity. The non-nefarious version, you know, the, the positive version is that, you know, we're a sample of life and, and, and they want us to get through our primitive stage of, of warfare and self-destruction and violence and hatred and racism, and horrible shit, so that we can thrive in a larger community. Um, I don't know. That was somewhat haunting when I heard that we're containers or that the aliens refer to us as containers. Let's imagine it's true. Is this just a somewhat terrifying thought? I mean, it depends on what you're containing. Well, again, yeah. I mean, we're talking, we're on real fringe territory here. Most people they're worried about, you know, where their next paycheck's coming from. It's my doggy. Where the, where the next paycheck's coming from. You know, people are worried about, you know, keeping the peace within their own family. People are worried about not giving a loved one COVID. I mean, th- this, this idea, I think is very important that we are not alone in the universe, that we are being visited by an intelligence that's far technologically superior to humanity and that we've been visited for a long time and that there is a message being sent in some ways to some people. Don't fuck up where you live. And, and if that's the case, if that's what really what's going on, 
it's it's an important message. Hmm. But in some ways, it's also a fatalistic one because it doesn't matter what we do. They may save us if it's in their best interest and they have extremely advanced technology. So what's, I mean, that, why should we nice. clean up the environment? They, they'll probably save us at the last moment. No, I'm, I'm being serious. If we're in their interest, our survival is. Well, maybe, maybe their interest is not just on the, the, the safety of the planet and the safety of the, the human species you know, regenerating. Again, maybe there's a, a different investment that they have in the, the maturation of, of, of human consciousness. Mm-hmm, like some spiritual development? I don't know. I'm not particularly a spiritual person. Uh, necessarily. I'm not a religious person, so I, I, I don't know. I don't know. Are all of your films related to UFO slash aliens, or do some of them touch on other subjects like near-death experience, remote viewing? Yeah, I mean, all of those things interest me. You know, that consciousness is not contained within the biology of, of the human body is a, is a big one to me because, you know, it is evident that these phenomena, these beings use a different form of communication often telepathic or whatever, but my films that are released, the big ones, you know, patient 17 is about an alleged alien implant removal surgery. Doesn't get any weirder than that. The second one is about hunt for the skinwalker, which is a, a government study of a haunted property, a property that has all sorts of strange phenomenon. And the third one is about Bob Lazar and Area 51 UFOs and flying saucers. Um, but I have done other films on uh, things like nanotechnology. I've done one on a, something called a, a space drive, he called it. it it's basically is a non-traditional propulsion system. These are short films, but uh, those are of a lot of interest to me. So yeah. And they're I like to- available to be viewed by people on YouTube yeah. or Vimeo? Yeah, yeah. YouTube, Vimeo, on my website. There's tons of information uh, on that. And then I like doing a lot of short movies. My first movie had nothing to do with UFOs. It was... Um, called Lost Vegas. And uh, it's just a short 12 minute film maybe. And um, it's just about- About? Yeah, people that uh, were kind of living on the Las Vegas Strip, uh, performers and whatnot, that kind of jumped out at me. And it was very deeply touching and personal and kind of a spiritual experience. And you see these individuals um, just uh, exposing their deepest selves. It's, It's pretty powerful, short film. Speaking of patient 17, hear that sound? That's the sweet sound of success with Shopify. Shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise. Whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets, Shopify supports you at every point of sale, both online and in person. They streamline the process with the internet's best converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. 
Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash theories. I have written down here what happened to patient 17 at the end, but I don't remember why I wrote that down. Does that ring a bell? Is that an incoherent question? No, I mean, at, at the end of the movie, it's, it's, it's frustrating. Uh, there was a sample of this uh, material that was taken out of uh, a guy's body. Now, if anybody knows me and, and watches the film you know, intently and you watch it, I, I don't, this is not something I believe. I'm not pushing to my beliefs. I, I found somebody with an extraordinary belief. It's a doctor, a surgeon, Dr. Roger Lear, who said he's going to remove an alien implant. The guy, the patient 17 himself, was not convinced that this had anything to do with his other experiences of abduction, which he does firmly believe he had. So at the end, it's kind of like hard because what happens to the sample? I don't have control of the sample. I'm not a scientist. We got an anomalous result from the sample, meaning that the isotopes within the zinc 64 came back from the laboratory as non-terrestrial. That's how you tell location is, is, is isotopes. And this was odd. So no, I didn't follow up. This is not my life. I'm not a, a scientist. That's Jacques Vallée, the famous Jacques Vallée. He can follow up with it. He is a scientist. So with patient 17, he, he went back to his normal life. You know, he's just a subject of a film. You mentioned that there's someone named Richard Doty who was driven mad. Do you mind expanding on that or expatiating? Yeah, that, that's a deep dive that people will need to really look into. But no, R- Richard Doty did not go mad. Uh, there's a guy named Paul Benowitz. Th- this was a, a situation where the United States government put disinformations into the UFO field. Uh, one of the guys involved, he's a friend Paul of Paul Denowitz? Uh, Benowitz with a B. Benowitz. Yeah. Okay. This is a guy named Rick Doty, who, who's a friend of mine. I, I like Rick. People vilify him and they're so angry. I'm friends with him. He's a good guy. He was Okay, so paid- who's Rick and who's Paul? And what happened to them? Rick, Rick Doty was, was paid to disinform the American public about UFOs by infiltrating the UFO field and spreading disinformation. And in one of his jobs doing this, there was an individual named uh, Paul Benowitz who was being fed the disinformation. And why it's so controversial is because Paul Benowitz uh, went crazy. You know, and some say it's because of the, you know, Rick Doty playing with his mind and his emotions, but in reality, Paul had had a breakdown prior. Paul was not fully hinged. Uh, so that's a, that's a very famous case in UFO lore about the United States military manipulating the beliefs of people within the UFO field, which has happened from time to time. Okay, so Rick, Rick worked for the government and Paul was just someone who was interested in, or maybe he's a ufologist, as some people call them. Yeah, he was a very brilliant scientist uh, who worked uh, near Manzano Weapons Storage Area out in um, New Mexico, and he was filming things on a classified base from his home. And they were Rick or Paul? What's that? Paul was filming. Okay, Paul Paul was, and Rick was tasked with disinforming the UFO public, and and Paul and a couple other people, researchers. It happens all the time. People that research UFOs, you you get hit with with people trying to convince you of something. It happens to me all the time. I get evidence that's too good to be true. I get photographs, documents, mm. and I never publish it because these people are fucking with me. <laughs> you think that they're 
government spies or government agents? I, I, I don't know of who they work for, but yeah, certainly there, I have um, gotten information that is, feels too good to be true. And when I dig deeper and deeper, I, I'm not going to fall for it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't okay, know who's so, orchestrating it. Yeah. And Rick's role at the government was what? Was he a part of the CIA or FBI or what? Yeah, that's, uh, I think it was OSI, Office of Special Investigation for the Army. I, I don't recall specifically, uh, but he has done a lot of counterintelligence and intelligence work for the Army. Was this disinformation part of Project Blue Book or was this just a separate task? Yeah, it was separate. Project Blue Book officially ended in 1969. Right. Um, and there was, you know, a certain number of cases that were unresolved and, uh, Yes, but there have been active programs about UFOs since then. Lots. Did the government ever pay civilians to debunk UFOs, as far as you're aware? I've never been 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 paid by the government to do anything about UFOs. So if somebody else is going to paycheck, I'd like to know about it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, whatever. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I don't know. I don't know. I, I would imagine it's just like anything within the intelligence community is when you have individuals who are predisposed to doing the work that you want them to do. Mm -hmm. that you can fund them to, to continue that work. I've seen it happen, you know, with, with domestic terrorism. I have a personal experience with that. I uh, know individuals who were involved in that uh, and they were paid. Are cash. you allowed to talk about that or no? I, I should, I, I should not, but it's just, uh, there were individuals uh, involved with infiltrating domestic terrorist cells and, you know, uh, it's something that's done all the time. Yeah. Okay. David Fravor said that the Russians shot at a UFO and the UFO shot back. I don't know if you've heard of this. Yeah, I'm, un I'm unfamiliar. I'm unfamiliar with that. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to send you the exact clip. And then if you don't mind watching it, because it might ring a bell. You know, it was, yeah, a, that was, it was an engaged five-minute thing. And there's other stories from other countries. Like there's a story uh, in the back in, when the Soviet Union existed that they actually would chase these things. And one of them shot at some, you know, it shot at it because they said shoot at it. And it shot at it. And then it got shot down. And then he said, don't ever shoot at them again and don't chase them. Just you can observe them, but don't go after them because obviously they have firepower that we can't control. Because if you can make something float around and jam radars at will and do whatever you want, you know, modern terrestrial weapons are probably not very useful. Yeah, I'm not I'm not familiar with that with that specific case, but I know that there was a shoot down order in Russia uh, regarding UFOs for a long time. And then that, that order was removed to, to not engage. And there was probably a good reason for that. But I don't know the specific case uh, Commander Fravor's mm -hmm. talking about. Have you heard of other cases where UFOs have engaged with in attack mode, let's say, to civilians or to the army? No, uh, there, there is a, you know, there's an interesting uh, set, set of cases that the Argentinian government uh, did... Uh, a massive study on that you should look into where these, uh, they call them chupas, I think. How do you spell chupas? them? Uh, I think that was the name, C-H-U-P-A-S. I'm, I'm not sure that that's right. I could be getting that wrong. But there was a, I, th I think it was Argentina and there was this whole government study. Again, man, I could be getting this totally wrong, but I, I'll send you the information later. Sure. But there, there were some uh, instances of, of physical harm done by by lights. But I think typically with the U with the UFO phenomenon, these things are disinterested in us. Usually, they're doing something like in the Travis Walton case, very famous case. Travis Walton was abducted, uh, and and you can look into this case yourself. But he believes that when he encountered the UFO in the forest, that it it 
it let off a field that, that did hurt him, but then they, they, maybe they swooped him up to, to take care of him and drop them back off days later. I don't think there's overt hostility. Obviously there's weaponry that would completely nullify anything that we have within our arsenals of defense in any developed nation on earth. So obviously these things are not overtly hostile. Uh, you know, that goes back to, you know, any of these encounters, you're, you're just not seeing attack mode by these things. So Brandon Fugel said that there were some of his employees or people studying Skinwalker that were actually hurt and had to be hospitalized. Do you know of any of those cases? Can you tell me about the details? Yeah. So you're talking about Skinwalker Ranch and the current owner is Brandon Fugel. Uh, the, the owner before was Robert Bigelow, uh, aerospace uh, billionaire, Robert Bigelow. Um, I do know that at Skinwalker Ranch, that there are a lot of claims of people having physical injuries from the phenomenon itself. I remain unconvinced on that connection and association between the phenomenon and these injuries. Now, I could be wrong. I do know that psychologically, people have been injured you know, from engaging the phenomenon. It, it appears that when they do, that it, it, it appears to follow them. And that is something that George Knapp has talked a lot about. And uh, if there's a, a grain of truth to it, you're going to find it at Skinwalker Ranch. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And when you say the phenomenon, you mean it more like in the Wittgenstein sense of a family resemblance. It's not just UFOs. It's cognate topics like the well, yeah, again, and UFOs are, are witnessed when there's a whole bunch of other phenomena going on as well. I mean, so people are having visions, they're having uh, telepathic experiences. Obviously there's occupants. So Skinwalker Ranch really teaches us that, that UFOs is just a part of the phenomena. It's a part of a bigger reality that we get to see from time to time. Have you spent any nights at Skinwalker? Sure have, yeah. Okay, what's happened to you personally? To me, to, that I was aware of, Nothing. I just, uh, you know, snuggled with a friend out of terror and fear. I mean, you know, there's, there's nothing uh, that I have as far as that's a positive. Oh, Snuggle absolutely. He's, he's, he's a good big spoon. Uh, my buddy, Matt Adams. No, you know, look, I've, I've had only positive experiences at, at Skinwalker Ranch. I did just before you uh, called me today, I did get a message from Robbie Williams, security head of security, a guy named Neil. And uh, Robbie Williams is a, is a pop star uh, from um, England. And yeah. he came with me to Skinwalker Ranch and, and me and George Knapp. And his security guy, Neil, was also with us. And Neil did claim to witness a very strange uh, phenomenon, which was this, um, like, a, like a shadow being, I guess you'd say, it looked like a, a, a tall being follow me through the kitchen of Skinwalker Ranch. Now, oh, I didn't you. see it. Yeah, yeah. But I, I didn't see it. I never see anything like that. I would love to turn around and be like, yo, shout out person. Tell me what's up. You know, I never see this kind of stuff, but he's dead mm -hmm. fast that he did see it with another guy that was, with, that was at the table. What he didn't know is that in the Defense Intelligence Agency study in this command center that we were in, that this shadow being phenomena had occurred twice before he was not privy to that information mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so if he was making something up he could have made up anything and it wouldn't have rung a bell that's what's so weird about the ranch you know mm -hmm. so i didn't see anything i'm i'm open to it being true i don't necessarily believe it to be true 
but we're talking about a witness who is uh, trustworthy. And he was seeing it live in person or was filmed? Yeah, live in person. The thing apparently followed me right through the kitchen and he, I could see this look on his eyes and, and, and uh, he told me about it. And I have this like a six minute audio clip. We're going in the car and he tells me about it. And I recorded. He didn't tell you right then. There's someone behind you or a no. hey, shadow person. No, he said, it's time to go. Interesting. Was, and someone was, else saw it too. He said, yeah, yeah. There was somebody else at the table that was able to see it. I miss everything, man. My back's always turned. I mean, look, in conclusion, we'll wrap this up with this, man. In conclusion, you don't have to take my word for it. UFOs are real and enough evidence is out there for you to, to understand that. If UFOs are real, then that should make you so curious about what they represent, what alternate reality they represent. There's an uncharted territory, a mystery here that, that UFOs are a beacon for. But by studying UFOs and by really looking at the history of what's happened, the credible information, there is an alternate reality. There's a reality that is more expansive and bigger than what we know. And that's what's so exciting to me about the UFO topic. One day I hope to, to learn more about it and I hope to get closer to the truth. But right now I'm like you, I'm just hungry for answers. Jeremy, thank you so much. Do you happen to have, I know you got to go soon or even right now, do you happen to have 10 extra minutes because I have quite a few audience questions we can just hammer them yeah. out? Yeah, sure, let's do it. Great, thank you so much. Okay, Rivulet says, I'm curious what he was like as a kid, if he knew he was going to be doing something of this nature, if he was intrigued by the abnormal, I suppose. Uh, no, I had no idea. Like, you know, how do you ever know what you're going to do when you grow up? <laughs> you know, <laughs> I didn't know that I'm growing up yet. We'll see what's next. Okay, then he also asks, and has his occupation ever gotten dangerous? For instance, threats from shady figures offered money to be quiet. I wish I was offered money to be quiet, but I'd never shut up. No. Nothing dangerous. The only thing dangerous are like the, the people that are so angry at me for like being on social media. I don't know. What's the single best piece of evidence you've come across in studying the UFO phenomenon? That's the same question that I ask every single person that I first interview anytime I turn on the camera and I've never gotten a satisfactory answer. So I certainly can't give you one. My best evidence that I have is my own personal experience and the people that have come forward to me who don't want fame or to be known and have told me a verifiable piece of information that I can't share with the public. For me, that's the coolest piece of evidence. Viewer Q says, he wants to know, the, or she, the three most influential slash perspective shifting books to you and why? Oh, man. Um, well, a story, the you know, Plato's Cave, amazing. Um, three most influential, like the most, the absolute most. Oh my gosh. I don't know, man. I read mostly like martial arts philosophy books. So um, Art of War, another great book. Um I don't know. I like to read for fun. <laughs> okay. Voyager two, U, Voyager UK 2002 said, in his movie with Lazar, he surprised Bob with a photo of a hand scanner. And apparently the same scanner was used in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. What do, what do, what does Jeremy and Bob think about this? Well, Bob's yeah, not I'm, here. I'm, no, I'm glad people ask. And that, that's a nice way of asking. People are so accusational. Man, people totally fucking misunderstood the point. So 
okay, Close Encounters. This clip has now come out that the hand scanner was in it. Now I've watched that movie. Ton- I've watched that movie tons of times. Have you ever watched the movie? Okay. No, I don't that, know what this person is talking about scanner, or, or what you're talking about. That hand scanner was never publicly shown or talked about. It was not even on people's radar till after Bob Lazar, right? Mm-hmm. Also, in the movie, they don't show what the scanner does, how it accesses the bone lengths, and that kind of thing. The, the revelation of my movie was not that the hand scanner existed. And of course, remember, things like Close Encounters, people are advising that movie Military people are advising that movie. I know people who advise that movie. So it's no surprise that they would use a scanner that is used in the UFO programs in that movie, but they never expressly say it. Now, Bob Lazar, we've all watched that movie. None of us thought about that. Everybody said Bob was crazy, but he said at site four, they used this scanner. It was really weird. It measured your bones. I have the audio and visual of him doing that to George Knapp. Come to find out, it was acknowledged, it was acknowledged that these scanners were used at Area 51 and Area 52. This happened while I was filming the movie. So when I got that image and I showed it to Bob, that is a genuine reaction. He was like, holy, you know, whatever he said, holy, you know, this is the fucking scanner. I never thought I would see this again. He didn't say all the F-bombs and all that. So people like to say, because the scanner was in the movie Close Encounters, that Bob just made it up. Well, guess what? If he made it up, he's again the luckiest person on planet Earth because turns out we now know they were used at Area 51 and Area 52. How did Bob know? So you come back into the same problem if you want to shit on Bob and try to call him a liar. Well, he's the luckiest liar you ever met then. Okay, we'll get to the next one. Stephen Paul, he says, artist, filmmaker, dot, dot, dot. Ask him about sense-making. How does he navigate through the chaos? Sense-making? Yeah, let's skip that. And then he wants to know, ask if he's read Future Shock by Toffler. I have not. Is it good? I'm just, I'm just asking Shock. Stephen I'm Paul's question. Okay. All right. Paul, read it. Okay. Efron, did you have any problems with authorities when trying to film? What happened and how did you overcome them? No, no problems. It was just the, you know, the recording of the conversation and, and the raid, but that didn't mess with me at all. Okay, Efron again. Do you think the government will ever expose aliens to the public as disclosure? No, not not in like the big sense, like aliens are here, and we're gonna tell you everything about them. It's too guarded a secret because of the potential for weaponization. Efron also asks, what's your advice to other documentary filmmakers attempting to create films regarding ET, let's say? I mean, if I could do it, literally anybody can do it. Like I just grabbed the cameras, started filming, got Final Cut Pro and edited it, very simple. So just do it. Don't ask permission. Actually, that is the advice. Don't ask permission and don't give a shit what other people think. Make your movie. Joshua Lysak asks, have you heard of Wright-Patterson Air Force Base and what are your thoughts on what goes on there? I sure have heard of Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. That is famously where there is a place called Hangar 18 where they hold some UFO materials. So yeah, I have heard about it. And what goes on there is that they house extraterrestrial um, artifacts there. Do you have any information that hasn't been, let's say, disclosed or not known to the UFO community about it? I, I, I do, and, and I will be presenting that information when I can back it up thoroughly. But, but I do. There's a warehousing program um, that is very interesting. It's been quoted to me as a museum of paper, uh, a location where there's a clearinghouse 
for all UFO-based content over the decades. Mike Wixon asks, how much of our current technology is based on reverse engineering of technologies from other beings? And if you could provide some examples, if you know of any. Yeah, that, that's debatable. A lot of people have argued that there's, you know, a real famous book that, that deals with Colonel Corso's claims about how uh, industry has been seeded with certain things like uh, supercapacitors or whatever. So, or what are they called? Whatever it is. Superconductors? Superconductors. So I don't know if that's true. I suspect there is some overlay with, with, with uh, but, but I do know this. I do know that the problem that we're facing now with our military is that a lot of these technologies are wrapped up in black budgets with private industry who seem to supersede the power of chain of command with our military with, with these programs, which is a real problem for our sense of, of government. So there are individual corporations which have historically held on to these programs and they're not sharing information. Some of this might be retreading some of our interview, but I'm going to ask it again. Maybe you can give a compendious answer. Mike Wixon also asks if we've been visited by aliens since the beginning of time, or at least since a long time ago, which aliens are they? Where are they from and how, and are there more than one species visiting us? Actually, I would suspect that there's more than one species that's visiting. Again, if this is not some simulation reality, you know, if the whole thing is not a simulation reality, then, then yeah, I'd suspect there's different beings that are visiting. And uh, the UFO phenomenon goes back to the beginning of recorded human history. Sajad asks, why are they always so clandestine in their abductions? And if they're directing our evolution, that means they effectively are the creators of religion. So how does this play into the greater picture? Uh, that's been claimed before, you know, that, that they've uh, influenced our religion and politics and thoughts and i don't know uh clandestine i mean if you're gonna abduct somebody you should probably be clandestine about it so <laughs> i don't know david gibson asks what fascinates him about aliens and that we're not alone you know just this concept that human beings are you know semi-intelligent beings predisposed to war <laughs> but that we might have other brothers and sisters and uh, individuals out there, uh, life forms with other forms of uh, propulsion, uh, other forms of technology, maybe other understandings of the universe, dreams for the future. Uh, that's powerful. That, that is what's most interesting to me. Okay, and just a couple more. Voyager UK 2002. Westfall UFO mass sighting in 1966, Melbourne, Australia, witnessed by over 200 school children. That's not even a question. It's just a point. That's okay. Do you have any comments on that? Look into the case. It's a great case. All right. Number two. Okay. It's another, it's another point like that. Phoenix lights. Okay. Number yeah, three, Travis, Travis Walton's abduction. Why does nobody talk about this anymore? Where are the loggers who were involved in this? It has a profound impact on them. They don't like each other, but they never change their story regardless. That's true. Not everybody gets along, just like with Bob Lazar. <laughs> Look, not everybody gets along that we're surrounding Bob at the time, but they all agree on one thing. Everything happened exactly like Bob Lazar said. So, you know, same with, with, with the other case you just mentioned, uh, you know. Travis maybe Walton? There's a, yeah, Travis Walton. I brought him up earlier. I mean, it's an important case and people are talking about it. I mean... I don't know. If you want to hear more about it, someone should make a movie on them. 
another movie. <laughs> Voyager UK 2002. Perhaps you should make a documentary on it. There we go. There, there's a great one out about Travis. Jeremy, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Hey, man, I'm, I'm just so excited that you're interested in it. You know, there's a, a PhD level understanding of UFOs that needs to occur before you can even begin to have the right questions. But, but the initial reason why people are interested in this is because um, the implications that something is greater in our reality and we have been lied to, this has been hid from us, that our governments have been implicit in hiding this information from us. That is huge. And so I, I think when someone gets interested in this concept, what I'd like to tell them is, you know, keep your mind open about it. Keep an open mind, but don't let the marbles fall out your head. You know, there's a big problem. It's called UFO disease. You start believing one thing, you believe anything. Keep your head on straight. Look at this uh, rationally. Look at the mountain of evidence. Be skeptical, but don't become a, a, a debunker. We've already decided one way or the other. Have you seen the Skinwalker series? I don't remember who published it. History Channel, maybe? Yeah, TV series. Yeah, yeah. What do you think of it? I, I actually haven't watched the, the whole series, but I think it's great that Brandon Fugel is allowing people to document what's going on. Look, it's, it's TV. I've heard the criticisms that, you know, it's exaggerated for the TV show. I, you know, I don't know. Uh, there's a mystery at Skinwalker Ranch and that, that mystery is alive and well, and it's worthy of scientific pursuit. The UFO topic is worthy of scientific pursuit. People like Neil deGrasse Tyson shouldn't make comments about uh, low resolution photos when clearly he doesn't know what an Atflare camera is, a targeting pod. People like that, we sh should hold this information to a higher standard. It is one of the greatest revelations that we could possibly have if it turns out it is true. Not only are we not alone in the universe, which we all suspect because it's mathematically probable, but additionally, they are visiting here. That is the key point. And if that's true, then, then that's going to speak volumes about, uh, about our technology and, and, and why they're doing it. I'm super interested in talking to someone about the physics and getting into some of the details and some of the nitty gritty. Do you happen yeah. to know, well, maybe Travis Taylor, someone I'm, I don't know if you've heard of Travis Taylor. Yeah. I've, I've heard of him. I'm He's in to, that TV series. Yeah. 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 That's right. I, I'm trying to think about uh, who would be a, a good person. Mine, obviously I would recommend that everybody go look at my YouTube channel, which is just uh, YouTube slash Jeremy Corbell. And there's a, a, a long version on there called the anatomy of a UFO. And that's where Bob Lazar describes the propulsion system itself, how gravity wave amplification works with the structure of the craft that he was able to have hands on with. Mm -hmm. I saw a video with him, but it was from maybe 30 years ago. Is this the one that you're referring to or is no, did you record I filmed, a new one? I filmed this with him. It's a, it's a 17 minute version of him explaining and drawing the, the UFO that he worked on but explaining how the propulsion system works with the structure of the craft. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, all right. Thank you so much, man. I appreciate it. I'm thank a fan. You. So any of the haters, if you want to, you can hate on me as well then. Uh, yeah. I, I, look, I don't mind. Everybody can have an opinion, even wrong opinions people can have. Uh, but the idea is that the, the individual, it's, it's not the messenger, it's, it's the message. If you're interested in this at all, you know, try to move the ball forward rather than you know, trying to suppress people that are trying to talk about this. Uh, you know, the, the comments 
land flat anyway. I don't read comments. So, you know, enjoy and, and hopefully people get uh, curious and like to say weaponize your curiosity. All right, man. Have a great one. Okay. Have a great night, man. Thank you. Do you have ADHD? Uh, you know, I was actually diagnosed with ADHD um, before it was, uh, you know, kind of a very common thing when I was a kid and they put me on, must've been like a Ritalin based drug. And I took it for like a week and I, um, I felt horrible. Like I felt like my soul was ripped out of me and I was like 10. It was before it became so well known, you know? Yeah. So yeah, I guess I do. I mean, stimulants make me kind of tired, like coffee and stuff. So, uh-huh. you know, I think I'm the same way. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, stimulants have a paradoxical effect on me, unfortunately, yeah. because I would love, I would love, you know, many people say that they live by nootropics and amphetamines and so on. Yeah. But anytime I've tried virtually anything, it hasn't helped. It maybe has made me worse. Almost nothing helps except Yeah, it's like the coffee. reverse. Yeah, it's like the reverse stuff. Yeah. I don't know. Everybody's, you know, got to figure out what works for them. But uh, yeah.